want you to turn to the seventh chapter of the book of Hebrews. All right, follow with me. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a ten part of all the spoils, was first of all by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. And in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there comes a place, a change of law also. There takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clear still if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him... Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And may He bless His Word that we might understand it tonight. This generation has coined a phrase. The phrase is, I know where you're coming from. 
kind of related to that is I know where your head is, but I know where you're coming from has nothing to do with uh, travel. You know, it doesn't say anything about where you've been. It really is a reference to perspective. It's a way of seeing things. So when I say I know where you're coming from, I'm saying I understand how you're seeing this or the perspective you have on a certain situation or thing. It's amazing how people react to sermons. Now I can preach the same sermon and uh, people will come from a different direction. That is, they'll have a different perspective on that sermon. Some, the sermon, the same sermon makes glad, some it makes sad, some it makes mad. But it's the same sermon preached, you know, at, the, you know, at one time. And there's a different perspective that people have toward what is being said. That's why the book of Hebrews is so different is because we're not coming from the same place these folks are coming from. This thing was not written to us originally. It was written to somebody in a totally different time whose head was in a different place and who were coming from two different, who were coming from a different perspective so that we have two different perspectives on the one book. Two different worlds we live in could uh, you know, be very uh, apropos to this book and our interpretation of it. The book of Hebrews is different. It's, it's coming from a different world than what we live in for several reasons. First of all, this book was written to Jews and we're not Jews and understand very little about Judaism. The book was written to people in the first century and we live in the 20th century. The book was written to folks who were suffering under the rule of Nero and all the anti-Semitism that existed in that world at that time. And they saw their families killed and their homes burned and their property confiscated and they drew a bottom line to all of that and they added all of that up and they said, if God is, if, if God is for us, if, if, if God is good and we belong to Him, why are we being persecuted like this? And because they couldn't make sense of all of that, many of them were saying, well, I'm going back at least to what I have known in the past where I have found security and safety. I'm going back to Judaism, at least I knew some security there. I became a Christian and all it got me was a great deal of heartache and pain and suffering. At least when I was uh, back there with my family and my friends in Judaism, I had some sense of security. I'm going back to the law. I'm going back to the tabernacle. I'm going back to the synagogue. I'm going back to the old way. And many of them were forsaking their Christian faith. As a matter of fact, we've already seen that many of them were really drifting from their moorings and were turning away from God. And, and so he addresses the mindset of the Jews, many of them who were going back to Judaism. And he talks to them in terminology 
that Jews understand. He, he, he calls names that they were familiar with, like Moses and Aaron and Abraham. Now we think of, we, we, we think of uh, uh, Roger Staubach and, uh, and uh, Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and governors and senators, and he's talking about priests and, and high priests and, and the priestly system. And he drops in a name that we probably have heard very little, the name Melchizedek. That name doesn't mean a thing to most of us. I'm sure that you've not spent a whole lot of time in research of who that man was. But when the author of the book of Hebrews called his name, that name was very familiar to the people who were coming from this age and whose mind was back then. I mean, that was a familiar man to them, and they understood what he was talking about when, they, when he talked about Melchizedek. Now, you've got to have that much background tonight. If you don't have that much understanding about what we're about to do, you're not going to have the slightest clue as to what chapter 7 is about. Understand now that he's writing to people familiar with the, Jewish, the Judaistic system, who were familiar with Melchizedek and what this man represented. And they were coming from a first century mindset that is totally alien and foreign from us. In chapter 5, he drops the name of Melchizedek. And the theme of Hebrews is this. The theme is the superiority of Jesus Christ now, if you learn nothing else about a study of the book of Hebrews, you need to learn that. Now, I'm going to confess, I was sitting in a class in, in Hardin-Simmons University, a Bible class, my second year, studying a, 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 an elective in, in Bible on Hebrews and discovered for the first time what the theme of the book of Hebrews was. So, you might have a jump on me. <laughs> The theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. That he is superior to Judaism. That he is superior to the law and Moses. That he is superior to, to angels. And now he's going to establish that Jesus is superior to the greatest priest who has ever lived. And his priesthood is superior to that priesthood. And he's saying to these folks who are renouncing their faith in Christ and are giving up on Jesus, you don't need to do that because I'm going to show you the superiority of Jesus Christ and help you see that He indeed is the answer to the needs, the profound, deep needs of your life. Now, you need to go back with, you, with me and let me give you the warning of verse 11 of chapter 5. If you'll just thumb back to that. Verse 11 says, Concerning him, that is Melchizedek, and there's a little footnote in my Bible, down at the bottom it says, Concerning this, that is, concerning Melchizedek and his priesthood, we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So I'm going to say and admit that what we're talking about tonight 
is extremely difficult to interpret. That's what the word explain means. It's the word hermeneutics, really, the, the system of explanation. This is difficult to explain and difficult to understand, and so you're going to have to zero in on it with me. Who was Melchizedek? Melchizedek, somebody was asking me before church, was he a real human being? And he was. Melchizedek was a man, a king of Salem and a priest. Now, very seldom is it true that a king was a priest at the same time. He was priest slash king, and he was king of Salem. Now that word the, the Salem is related to Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, Salem is, the, is a part of Jerusalem, means peace, city of peace. So that Melchizedek, king of Salem, was the king over the region that we know now as the region of Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem wasn't, you know, didn't exist then, but the region where Jerusalem now is, is the region where Melchizedek was king. And he was a contemporary with Abraham. He lived in the same time, at the same time that Abraham lived, and he met one day Abraham somewhere on a road when Abraham was returning from the slaughter of the kings. And all of this is described in Genesis 14. There's just a little bit of it there. It's all it, all it tells. But on the way back from this slaughter of kings, Abraham meets Melchizedek and he apportions just a portion, and this is one of the most awesome and astounding things of all, is he apportioned to this king slash priest a tenth of the spoils that he had gained in the war and the slaughter of the kings. Now I want you to get the scenario. Don't miss the scenario. Here comes Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, on his way back from this war, and he's tired and weary from the battle, and he meets this man, Melchizedek. He just appears on the scene, kind of a maverick priest who just appears on the scene, and Abraham is weary from the battle, and, and Melchizedek gives him bread and wine, and Abraham gives to him a tenth of what he has won in these battles with the kings. And this king priest, watch this, blesses Abraham and goes on his way. That's the end of the story. Now, that's not much of a story to get all excited about unless you're coming from where these folks are coming from. And the writer is saying there's a lot here that is, that is essential and there's a lot here to learn for there is not a better illustration of the priesthood of Jesus than the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now I want you to look with me at Genesis chapter 3. I mean uh, at, at verse 3. Why don't I get Genesis 3? Well, verse 3 of the 7th chapter. It says that it, it, it tells us a little about this man we want to meet Melchizedek. It says that he is without father or mother or genealogy. Now, it doesn't mean that he didn't have a father or a mother. 
It means that there was no record of his genealogy. There was no record of his genealogy. It says that he was without beginning. That means that there is no birth date of him. There is no birth certificate. Is that important? You just, you know, go try to get your passport without a birth certificate. Here I am, 225 pounds, standing there trying to prove that I really am, you know, that I exist. No, you don't unless you got a birth certificate. There is no end to him. It means that there is no record of his death. He has no genealogy. There is no record of his mother and father. There is no record of his birth date or when he died. He just appears on the scene and disappears. Now theologically, that is of extreme importance, especially if you are a Jew and you're thinking about, you're you're relating to priesthood. Watch this very carefully. I'm I'm reading from one's observation of this. Men could not under any circumstance be a priest unless he could produce a certified and unbroken pedigree back to Aaron. If he had not that genealogy, nothing in the world could make him a priest. Character and ability has nothing to do with it. The only essential was that pedigree. Genealogy was everything. In other words... This guy wasn't supposed to be a priest, really, because he had no proof of genealogy that goes back to Aaron. Now, now you might be saying, now this is beginning to make some sense. Suddenly, he encounters a man who came on the scene, does Abraham, Not only does he encounter Melchizedek, not only does Melchizedek encounter the father of of the nations, he blesses the father of the nations. Now what significance does that have? Well, this. In the economy of the Jews, in the plan of, of Jewish life, the blesser is always greater than the blessed or as Johnny Carson would say, the blessee. The blesser is always greater than the blessee. Now I want you to notice what the author is establishing. He is establishing that this Melchizedek, this maverick priest, was superior to Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. Superior to him. Because the blesser is always greater than the blessee. And in verses 4 through 7, he gives two reasons why that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. One is because Abraham gives to Melchizedek 10% of the spoils. Now here is the amazing thing. Now watch this carefully. Uh, if you're not into this kind of thing, this is not going to be exciting, but it unfolds a beautiful story, a beautiful picture and analogy. When the priest came, 
established under the Mosaic law, they were of the tribe of Levi. You, you know that. Everybody knows that, I'm assuming. And the way they were sustained in life was that they were, they required, everybody was required to give 10% so the priest could make a, so the priest could live. They didn't work. They performed religious functions and it was a part of the requirement. They could expect it, even demand 10% of everybody's income. Now you'll understand, of course, that Abraham is giving this 10% to Melchizedek and hundreds of years before the Levitical system was established where the priest could demand 10%. Now where did he get that idea? Where did he get that idea? That's, a, that's the amazing thing. That he just automatically gave to this priest what would de be demanded that everybody else hundreds of years later give to the priest. Well, the only answer I have of that is that the inspiration that God told him to, that God was establishing to Abraham that here is a priest to whom he owes an obeisance, a, a, a form of worship, a 10%. And Melchizedek is greater because he received 10% than the Levitical system later on because he came first over the Levitical system. Now, are you with me? So that what he is establishing is not only that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, he is establishing that the priesthood of Melchizedek was superior to the priesthood of Aaron and the Levites. Now that's pretty amazing. And the second reason he's greater is because what I alluded to a moment ago, he, gave, he, he blessed and the blesser is always greater than the blessed. Now, I want you to follow with me and I want to read again verses 8 through 10 because it's really important we get this. Now I'm, I'm, I'm aware of the time. May not get through tonight. You may get through before I do. If I see you getting through, I'll quit. And in this case, verse 8, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. Listen carefully. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi who received tithes paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father, when Melchizedek met him. In other words, he hadn't been born yet. Now watch this. Here was Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation. He had a son. His name was what? Isaac. The Jews came down that line. Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was named Levi. These 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And of the twelve tribes of Israel, Levi was a tribe, and out of this tribe came the priest. Now, you could be of the tribe of Levi and not be a priest, but out from the, from the tribe of Levi came the priest. Now, here was Abraham, and, and, and he still had in his loins, that is, he was going to be the father of Isaac and Isaac was going to be the father of Jacob and Jacob was going to be the father of Levi. It was going to happen on down the line. So through Abraham, Levi 
the tribe of Levi from which the priest came, that is, through Abraham, the priests of Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. You follow that? Now that's pretty complicated and weird, but I think you can see that. And what he is establishing is this, that through Abraham, the priests of Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek, even though they had not yet been, but through him, see. Now what does that say? It ought to be obvious what it says. It says that the priesthood of Melchizedek is superior to the priesthood of Levi. All right, now, verses 11 through 16 is a contrast between Jesus and Moses. Now, here's the question. I'll not read that for the preservation of time. But here's the question. If perfection, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, if on the basis of the Levitical priesthood men received the law, and there was perfection through the law. That is, if you could be saved by observing the law and, and following the sacrifices of the priesthood, the system of priesthood, if you could be forgiven of sin, if you could have righteousness, what further need would there be for another priest to arrive, he's saying. That's the question. Are you with me? If the priesthood of Aaron was sufficient to give perfection and righteousness and security, why did God skip all the way back to Melchizedek to draw the comparison? The answer is this. Because Melchizedek represents what the Levitical priesthood could never do. I need to say that again. Melchizedek represents what the Levitical priesthood could never do. They could go and observe, their, you know, bring their sacrifices faithfully, and they could keep the law of Moses that came down through the Levitical priesthood for the priests you know, wrote out the law, the Levites wrote out the law, but what the Levitical priesthood could never do, Melchizedek accomplished. And a priesthood like his. Now, perhaps if I gave you these three parentheses that are found in, in this passage, you know, uh, kind of give the three uh, uh, categories, it might be easy. First, there's this brief encounter of Abraham with Melchizedek. Secondly, there's the whole Mosaic priesthood, the Levitical priests, and the whole uh, generation of ministry. And then there is Jesus. And the Holy Spirit says that this Jesus came from a whole new tribe. And his tribe was after the order, it was like the tribe of Melchizedek. And the point is this. Now, don't miss the point. The point is this. That the priestly security is no security at all. That the Levites have done their job and they've been set aside and then Jesus has come. Jesus has come. And what... And, and, and His priesthood is not based upon the law... 
And it's not based upon pedigree because he says that he came not from the tribe of Levi but from the tribe of Judah. You can't trace Jesus' line all the way back to Aaron. He's just like Melchizedek. But the security that Jesus brings, he says in verse 16, is the security of an indestructible life. Now watch this carefully. If you were a Jew, you would be depending upon the law and all that the priestly system established for your righteousness. You would bring your sacrifices and you'd bring your, your, you'd come and observe the, the law as Moses demanded it or required it or presented it. That's the way you would find right standing with God. And the author of the book of Hebrews is establishing that Jesus is superior to that and that his superiority and our security is based not upon the observance of sacrifices or law but on the basis of his indestructible life and that our salvation is made secure because Jesus is indestructible. He lives on. His priesthood never ends. And, 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 and your salvation and mine and our security, your security and mine, is not on the basis of can I keep the law? Can, will, will I, am I going to follow the system? My security is based upon Jesus who is indestructible. That's glorious truth. Now I see some things by way of application. By the way, if you turn to the 21st chapter of Leviticus uh, sometimes, you'll read that all of the requirements of the earth, the, the physical priesthood, were uh, all those requirements were physical. Jesus, uh, his, our security is based upon the spiritual accomplishment of Jesus. Not, it's not based upon anything physical, but on our faith in Christ. By way of application, I see three things, and then I'll quit. Jesus not only knows where we're coming from, He knows where we're going. Jesus knows not only where we're coming from, using that analogy, that, that, that uh, uh, phrase from the, from the first, He knows where we're going, and where we're going ultimately ends up at the bima, the judgment seat. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after that the judgment. Our life and everything about it is destructible, but his is indestructible. A few years ago, Southern Baptists got up in a got in a big uproar. We always get in a, you know, big fights over nothing. We got in a big uproar over a book called Saved by His Life. And this professor at Midwestern uh, Seminary. Uh, was trying, you know, he, he was labeled by the conservatives, quote-unquote, as a, as a liberal, a heretic. But his point was that we are saved not by the death of Jesus, but by his life. Now, he wasn't denying the cross and the vicarious suffering of Jesus to bring redemption. He, knows, he knew that without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. But the point he was making was that our security is based upon the fact that you can't kill Jesus. 
He's indestructible. Secondly, Jesus not only is concerned about where our head is, He's concerned about where our heart is. Now I know a lot of people tonight who have all this, this all figured out and they've got all this, you know, they've got it all equated but have no heart for God. Now you can spend all your time, you know, in the system, in the, in the uh, theology, in the hermeneutics, in the interpretation of Scripture and have no heart for God. He's not just concerned about what you know, but who you are and what you feel and how, who, who you love. Third, Jesus tells us where that we are weak within ourselves and how we can be strong and complete in Him. Now I want to read again verse 19. Look at this. It says, For the law made nothing perfect, the law gives no one right standing with God. And on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Now what the author of the book of Hebrews has done in all of this is to tell Jews that Jesus is superior to Abraham and his priesthood is superior to the priesthood established through Moses and that we can draw near to God not through the observed by the keeping of the law but the way we draw near to God is through Jesus. As a matter of fact, the only way you will ever get to God is through Jesus. That's the only way you'll ever get to God. I was uh, preaching a revival in Gresham, Oregon. It's a little old town outside of Portland. And there was this Muslim in the service. A, everybody there, the preacher had won to the Lord. And this, these people brought this guy to the services. And I was preaching. I, I made a statement that the only way you could ever come to God was through Jesus. And after the service, he, he challenged me on that. He said, we, we, have, we, we have God, our God is Muhammad and Allah is His prophet. And, and, uh, our God is Allah and Muhammad is His prophet. And you have your God, Jehovah, and Jesus is His prophet. And we believe that, that there are many ways to God. That Jesus is just one of the ways to God. My, my answer to that was that if Jesus is not the only way to God, that He's none of the ways to God. Because He said, I am the way the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Now the only way you and I will ever come to God is not by observing the law, but through the better promise, which is that we have Jesus Christ who brings us to God. And that confronts us with this question. Have you ever come to God? Have you ever made Jesus Christ your Savior and Lord? Have you ever confessed Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord? If you've not, you've not made it to God, you see. And what I'd urge you to do tonight is to consider your need to confess Jesus Christ as your Savior. I know we've got a lot of church members and all that, but have you ever confessed Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? 
That's the way you get to God. That's the way you have perfection in the sense of righteousness and right standing. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you've given us your word and you've helped us to see in a little bit different way who Jesus is and what he's like. And we thank you that he is superior, that he transcends priesthood and systems and laws, and that he personally brings us to God through the power of his indestructible life. And that having conquered everything that conquers us, he is indeed Lord and worthy to be the Lord of our life. And I pray that you'll help us to trust him and believe him and follow him to the end of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name. Now there are three invitations that are always available, offered at the end of an evangelical service. Some of you may have never seen an invitation. We invite people in an invitation, public response, to come and, and, and profess their faith in Jesus Christ publicly. Jesus called men publicly. Call people publicly. Come giving your heart and life to Jesus Christ, confessing Him before men. Second invitation is an, invita an invitation to church membership, to unite with a fellowship of believers. The third invitation is to draw closer to God through rededication of your life to Him. And as God, if God speaks to your heart concerning these, we'll give you that invitation while we stand to sing.